Last week, I mentioned that I was very close, right before the sermon, to pivoting and preaching on worship rather than discipleship. When I said that, I did not mean to give you the impression that I was angry or upset with something uh, or anything like that. I'm sorry if anyone took it that way. I understand if you did. What I meant by that was I felt and I feel a real burden that as a pastor, I have not done a very good job preaching about worship. And I was anxious to set that right, and that's what I'm going to try and begin to do this morning. Now, there is no way I could possibly in one sermon say all that needs to be said about worship. You don't want me to try. I will tell you in studying uh, for this this week, uh, as one does, reading and listening, you pour a lot more into yourself than what ends up coming out. But by way of introduction, I think this is a good starting point because you ask yourself, where do you start with this? I wanted to start by saying worship is not primarily about Sunday mornings for the Christian person. Now, when I say that, I don't want you to hear me saying something that I am not actually saying, because I am aware uh, in preaching on discipleship last week that one of my main points about discipleship was that it could not possibly be achieved by simply attending church on Sunday mornings. And some wise guy may start putting that together and be like, well... It seems then that Sunday mornings are actually not that important, and that would be a wrong conclusion. That's not, that's not a biblical conclusion to make. In saying that worship is not primarily about Sunday mornings, and in saying that discipleship for a Christian is not primarily a Sunday morning event, in saying these things, I am not trying to devalue the gathering of the church on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. We are commanded in Scripture not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together for corporate worship. So I am going to start this morning by sharing two passages with you back to back, and then we will be well on our way. First passage, this is very well known. This is Romans 12, just verse 1. Uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, Paul writes, I plead with you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, notice a few things here very quickly. First, Paul in this passage is pleading with us to present our bodies, that is, our human lives, as living sacrifices to God. He is not talking, then, about something that we do on Sunday morning alone. Uh, He is not talking about something that you can do once and then be done with for a while. If we were in the Old Testament and we were presenting animal sacrifices, we would bring the animal, we would kill the animal, the animal would be dead, and so it was something that you did once. Now, you could do it again the following week or the following day with a different animal, but when you're offering an animal... That animal is dying, and you offer it once, and that's an event. You can do it again, and you can do it again, and you can do it again. But Paul here is calling us to something better and something deeper, something spiritual, which I know is where some of us hear something less significant, but the spiritual for the believer is the most significant. He says in this passage from Romans, we can actually offer something better to God that is ourselves. 
Furthermore, this is a sacrifice we can offer constantly and continually to God by the way that we live our lives. This will be far better than a dead animal that someone might bring. It will be a living sacrifice. He says that this sacrifice will be acceptable to God, which is quite remarkable, that I could live my life in a way that is acceptable to God. I mean, that's, that is remarkable. Jesus, by his death and resurrection has made our lives acceptable for worship to God. This is actually very important because if I want to please God, I must learn what is pleasing to God. If I want to please God, I have to learn what it is that will please Him. I do not want to waste my time, waste my life like Cain offering something to God that will not please him in a way in which he is not satisfied. I don't want to do that. I don't want to live my life that way. I want to have my offering accepted by God. So Paul, when he says here that we can make an offering to God which is acceptable, that's important. Now Paul finishes the verse by saying, this type of daily, consistent, living offering of ourselves to God, day in and day out, is our reasonable service. Now, this is important, so please don't miss this. The word for service there is a word used for worship in the Bible. That's a huge thing to understand if we're going to settle on what our worship to God should actually be. A lot of people have a lot of ideas about what worship should be, and they think, I will sing a song to God, or I will give some money to God, or I will send up a prayer, or I'll just show up and I'll take my spot each week, And I am worshiping. I'm here. I'm in my spot. I'm worshiping. But are you worshiping? Are you worshiping? To worship God is to please Him. To please Him is to serve Him. The priest in the Old Testament served God. And their service was worship. And that's what we're called to do. I'm not your priest. I'm not your priest. I don't worship God on your behalf. Those priests in the Old Testament offered dead sacrifices, various animals, but we are called, yes, you, not me on your behalf, all of us are called to offer living sacrifices to God, namely ourselves to God as worship. That is a powerful thought. In fact, several Bible translations even use the word worship here instead of service. The same Greek word behind the word service here is used elsewhere in the Greek New Testament, even in the book of Romans, specifically Romans 9, Hebrews 9, to speak of the service that Israelites, a faithful Israelite, would render to God in worshiping in God's tabernacle and temple. So we are talking about what is acceptable worship. And here, as we read, it's acceptable for us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So, Paul is saying that our worship to God as Christians must be different from ancient Israel's. We must worship God in the way that we live our lives, which is a constant offering. He says, in light of what Jesus has done for us, Jesus, who lived his earthly life in order to redeem us and save us from judgment, in light of that, it's very reasonable for us to live our earthly lives in a way that is pleasing to God. That's a reasonable thing. Jesus sacrificed his life for us. It is reasonable for us to offer our lives as sacrifice to God. And I want to quickly show you another passage in the Bible which is going to make it clear that although our worship to God cannot and must not be confined to Sunday mornings, God's Word is also clear that in our daily worship, we should not neglect what we do on Sunday. 
And it's this passage from Hebrews. How many of you are sick of this passage from Hebrews? Uh, you know, a, a prob- hopefully not now. At some point in your life, you've probably been sick of hearing this kind of a thing. Someone has come up to you and said, hey, you know, uh, you're not supposed to forsake. the ass- Or you've heard someone say it. O- you've heard me say it over and over. You know, I'm sick of this passage in Hebrews. But what is actually going on in this passage? What is actually happening here? Is this, just, is this just a rule? Let's think about what's actually happening. Now, the passage is simple. This is just a portion of it here. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. I hope that's a little encouraging to you because it tells you that even in the early church in the New Testament time, very early Christian people, very close to the resurrection of Jesus, people who heard from the Apostle Paul had developed the habit of not coming to church so often, not gathering with God's people so often that it could be described as forsaking it. So if you have ever been in this situation, you are not alone. It has been going on for 2,000 years, and here we're told that we shouldn't do that. It is a bad thing to forsake the assembling of God's people together. But if we expand the verse a little bit, we can see a little bit deeper into what Paul is saying. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more so, as you see the day approaching. And now we start to get a picture of what Sunday mornings are supposed to be like. We're not to miss Sunday mornings. We're supposed to be here. And while we are here, we're supposed to be encouraging or exhorting each other. Why? Well, it tells us because Jesus is going to return. You see where it says, as you see the day approaching, Jesus is going to return. We will give an account to him for how we live our lives. We should be encouraging one another to live our lives the right way. We should be ministering to one another in this way. Remember, Our lives are supposed to be daily offerings. When we come together, we're supposed to be encouraging each other to fulfill this because we are not strong enough to fulfill this alone. We are not strong enough to offer our lives as living sacrifices to God on our own. As a pastor, I want to say there are many sad stories of Christian people and many stories of people who are not Christians who thought and who convinced themselves that they were strong enough to serve the Lord faithfully pretty much on their own. That is not how God has designed the church. That is not how God has commissioned His Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And I want to say this this morning. If you are a Christian person who is thinking that way, I'll muster up the strength to do this on my own. I can do this on my own. I can deal with this on my own. If that is you, you are making a mistake. You are living in error. And trying to be a good Christian person, but leaning very little on the Spirit of God working through other believers, day in and day out in your lives, will often leave you empty in terms of your faith and faithfulness, powerless to fight sin, mundane and dull and disinterested in your worship, Perhaps your life seems in many ways to not be very different at all from the rest of the world. And I want to say to you this morning, there is great hope in correcting course and trusting God's design for the Christian life and the Christian church. You cannot expect the Holy Spirit of God to work in your life on your own terms. You must submit to God's design for His people and your place among those people, and then you will see the Spirit of God working in your lives. That is my own personal 
account. That is my own personal testimony. I'm not going to give it to you this morning. But at 23 years old, for all I knew about the Bible, and I knew a lot at 23, for all that I understood about Christian life, which I thought at the time was a lot, I had this part wildly wrong. And it was the mercy of God that made me miserable for years of my life as a Christian until I realized that I could not serve God on my own terms. It would have to be on His terms. So we must encourage one another, specifically when assembled on Sunday mornings. And I want to expand this verse even further. Now we bring in the full train of thought of the writer here in Hebrews 10 when he says we're not supposed to be forsaking our assemblies uh, of the selves together. It's actually a much larger point. And here's, if we back up to verse 23, we see it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So, what we are being taught, actually, is not that we have to show up on Sunday mornings as a form of legalistic necessity, which I'm afraid is how we sometimes come to church. I must be here. I must be here. I'm supposed to do this. But this is not legalistic necessity, like in the Old Testament with a Jewish family reluctantly or half-heartedly or out of necessity bringing a sacrifice to an altar, to a priest, to make an offering, or else they would be in trouble. That's not supposed to be what this is. And it's a shame. It's a sadness if that's what it becomes. But actually, our assembling together is a testimony to God and to each other, to each other that we are holding fast to our hope in Christ Jesus. I am not wavering. I am holding fast. I am still here. I am still serving. I am still the Lord's. I believe. I continue to believe. I am not wavering in my belief. Jesus Christ saves sinners. Jesus Christ loves sinners. Uh, Jesus Christ will return to redeem sinners. And we make this testimony weekly to each other in worship, and we are called, we are called, to consider one another as we do it. To consider one another. When you come to church on Sunday mornings, you are supposed to be thinking about each other. And our thinking about each other should be the kind of thinking that wonders, what can I say? What might I do? How might I sing? What might I offer to stir up in this person the love of God and the good work that God has created them as a new creation in Jesus Christ to perform? So here's where we have to land in our initial understanding of worship. Sundays must not be the fullness of our Christian worship. That's a daily sacrifice. But Sunday mornings must be a faithful part of our daily sacrifice to God. And for the remainder of this morning, I want to turn our attention to a few things regarding Sunday mornings, all right? Um, mainly that our worship is wonderfully better because of Jesus. Um, I can't say that more clearly. I'm going to do my best to present it clearly today, to proclaim it to you. Our worship is wonderfully better because of Jesus. Now, I want you to see a picture of this. And to do this, I've got to try to paint a picture of what Old Testament worship of God was like. And 
Brothers and sisters, that would take me a long time to do passage by passage in the Old Testament, so I'm, go- I'm not going to do that. I don't like to teach this way, but I'm, I'm going I'm to give you some summary points of what Old Testament worship is like, because otherwise, this is going to be about a 10-part sermon series, and it's not, that's not the aim. I ta- I want, we want to talk about worship in a summary way today. What was worship like in ancient Israel? Well, before the cross of Jesus... The people had to consecrate themselves. They had to go through rituals to make themselves clean. It's a really interesting picture. Um, The Israelites are in Egypt. Moses leads them out. They go to the mountain of God in the wilderness. God descends upon the mountain in fire, in smoke. And before he gives them the Ten Commandments, he gives them instructions. This is Exodus 19. And it says that they must wash all of their clothes. Now, I don't know how clean a bunch of ancient people wandering in the desert of all places could possibly get their clothes without running water and detergent and deodorant. and I mean, I, whatever, however clean they got their clothes... By our standards, I am imagining it was, it was not all that clean. That's what I am imagining. Yet God has them go through this exercise anyway. You and I would look at this and chuckle. This is not clean as we think of it, but God has them do it anyway because they have to clean themselves out of reverence and respect for the ceremony of approaching a holy God in worship to consecrate themselves, to make themselves holy in a way, out of service to God, which is the context of this worship, service to God, the priest would have to consecrate themselves. They would have to go through this stuff regularly. The tabernacle, the place where they worship God, would have to be consecrated. It had to be clean. The instruments would have to be dealt with. This was a very big deal. It took very great effort. It took a ton of time. And the consecration did not just involve cleaning, but it involved blood, the sprinkling of blood of these animal sacrifices. They would become clean, and then they would become covered by the blood. And speaking of the priests who were doing all this, it's the next thing we notice in Israel's worship. The people were not able to worship God by presenting these offerings themselves. They would have to go through priests. They had to use mediators. Other men whom God had set aside their entire lives, set aside, designed to make these guys acceptable to serve God and worship. These priests would take these sacrifices and present it before God. They couldn't do it themselves. They couldn't offer to God directly any of these offerings. Their worship by God's design in the Old Testament before the cross had to take place through appointed people whom God had chosen, a priest. Where would they take place? Tabernacle, temple, began in a tabernacle, this giant tent structure. And in ancient times, when a king traveled with his armies, he would erect a pavilion, like a giant tent, and he would encamp himself in the middle of of his armies, and all of his armies would know when they saw the flags of that pavilion, that tent, that is where the king is staying. And here is God, the king, and he has a tabernacle dwelling among Israel, and they know our God is there. They look at it, they see our God is there, but you couldn't go into it. 
You could go into parts of it, but the priests were the only ones allowed in the inner parts of it because that's where the presence of God dwelt and God was holy and God was to be feared because we are not holy. Even the priests could not freely go in to the innermost part though. There was an, a veil that, that, that sheltered away the innermost part and in there they called it the holy of holies, the most holy place, the set apart place. And the Ark of the Covenant was there. And atop the Ark of the Covenant was an area inside that place, a space that was called the mercy seat of God. It's a depiction of the throne of God in heaven as if it were in that holy of holies, the mercy seat of God. And it was called a mercy seat because it was in here that the priests would go in and plead for God's mercy. It was going to take God's mercy to dwell with men. And they would go in there to that place once a year a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then on the Day of Atonement, and on that day alone, year by year, the priest who was chosen would go in to the presence of God, first in the tabernacle, later in the temple. And on that day, they would make an offering to God for all the sins of the people of Israel. Because that's what atonement is. It's an offering that cleanses from sin. And they would make this offering for all Israel, even the priests, they had to make this offering for themselves and they would do it year by year and all of this in accordance with what they were told at Sinai in the desert, the mountain of God. And there at Sinai, they gathered. And do you know who they gathered with? You know who came to Sinai? A bunch of holy people, a bunch of good people. They gathered at Sinai a crowd of rebellious people, rebels. This was not a good people gathered at Sinai. They came before God and worshipped. This was not a good group. These are idol-worshipping people. They'd spent their lives in Egypt worshipping idols. And after they received, days after they received the Ten Commandments of God, they are making golden calves to worship an idol again. This is not a good people. This is a rebellious people. This is a people who reject God for 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And there at Mount Sinai, this rebellious people assemble to meet with God. Couldn't go near Him. God told them if anybody so much just touched the mountain, they'd be killed. That's Sinai. Now, this is a brief picture of what Old Testament worship would be like. What about us? How does it compare to what we have on Sunday mornings? Well, we don't come to Mount Sinai. We don't come to Mount Sinai. We come to Mount Zion. And you may not be familiar with what Mount Zion is. It is the mountain of God in heavenly Jerusalem. We come in worship. We come in our song to the heavenly Jerusalem. We come, and this is from Hebrews chapter 12. We'll turn there in a minute. You can go there now if you want. To the assembly of angels of God's people who have died before us in heaven with God. We come together with each other who though we are in sinful bodies, our names are registered in heaven already, sealed there already. This is Hebrews 12. I hope you can rejoice in this. For you have not come church, to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, Moses' response was, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. No. But you have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Let's just stop for a minute. You look around this morning and you see white panel walls with little chips showing what they used to be beneath the paint. And sometimes there's a ceiling panel that falls when it shouldn't and we can't get it back up in time. And a modest stage with a mediocre guy with these very unflattering fluorescent lights beating directly down on my bald head. This is, you come to this and, 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 and we're all, most of us, Maybe not all of us in some form of discount dress clothes. We're not in we're not in, in thousand dollar suits. I mean, we come together and in the flesh, what we see is not all that grand. We have unpaid, you know, unpublished musicians leading us. We have a choir with unacclaimed voices singing. We're not releasing any tabernacle choir CDs this Christmas. No one's paying for that. I'm serious. And you come and you join into this and you, and, and you could almost be forgiven in the flesh for just recognizing what it is. This is very modest. This is very modest. But the writer of Hebrews is trying to remind us of what is really going on when we are gathered together spiritually on the Lord's Day. To an innumerable company of angels, he says. And when I read that, I think of Elisha. And you may not know this story, but I think of Elisha. And you remember, he's surrounded by his enemies, and he's in this city, and his servant is very afraid. And his servant there in 2 Kings is like, Elisha, what are we going to do here? And Elisha prays that God will open the eyes of his servant so he can see what Elisha by faith sees, which are the armies of God in angelic form surrounding the city. And I think of that as we gather here and we look around and all we see are, well, there's an empty seat there, there's someone over there, and there's a white wall there, and there's this guy that I'm listening to. When you see all of that, we need to have the faith to see beyond all of that to what God's word, if we believe it, says is actually happening here. That we are gathering to an innumerable company of angels, not merely angels, but to the spirit of just men made perfect. We are gathering with saints who are with the Lord. We are gathering before God. We are gathering in praise there. So I am happy to announce that attendance is never actually down on Sunday morning. I mean, that's not how this works. It's how it seems. It's how it feels. It can be a struggle. It can be difficult. But it's not true. It's not real. And then the next verse in Hebrews 12 says this. Not only do we gather with angels, not only do we gather with the spirits of just men made perfect, not only do we gather with the assembly of the church whose names are registered in heaven, but we come to Jesus. I don't see him. I don't see him here today. I don't see Jesus. I long to see Jesus. But we come to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel, talking about the old covenant, talking about the offering of dead sacrifices. We come under a different consecration. Yes, Christians. 
We are assembled this morning to the presence of Jesus, which is no less than what he promised us in Matthew 18, 20, when he says, when two or more are gathered in my name, there I am also. You don't need a priest to worship for you on your behalf. We come to Christ. And you need to understand this because our worship is not supposed to be like a funeral. Jesus has made his offering of his blood to God for us. So our worship is not a blood offering to God. Our worship is not this gory, ugly mess of an animal sacrifice this morning. Our worship is not a reminder of the ugliness and the goriness of our sin. Our worship is not about the guilt of our sin. Our worship is not covered in death. It's not all the blood. It's not all the death. All of that is finished by Christ. Our worship is about life, His life and our life in Him. And it may be a remembrance of those things, but it is about the life that what Jesus has done has purchased for us. And we do not need a tabernacle that walls us off from a holy God as if we might be killed for coming close to Him. We do not need a temple which can shield us away from the presence of God among us. For God's temple is with us and in our hearts. That's what's promised to us in Jeremiah 31. In Ezekiel 36. The Holy Spirit of God does not dwell in a tent, but 1 Corinthians 6.19 says it dwells with us in our hearts. And this is possible because of the atoning work of Jesus. Hebrews 10 says this. I'm going to read it to you. You can turn there. You should only be a couple pages away. This is Hebrews 10.11. This is speaking of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over again, which can never take away sins. Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, that's Jesus. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. And then Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever Some of you this morning, wrestling with sin, unsure of your salvation, not sure of where you're at, you need to hear what Jesus has done for you in Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That offering is Jesus at the cross. He is, according to Hebrews 4, our great high priest. He is the one who has gone to God on our behalf with the final offering. He has gone before God once and for all. He has offered his life as an atonement for our sins. We don't need any other priests year by year to go in before God on the day of atonement. We don't need that anymore. We don't need any other priests year by year to make any offerings for the cleansing of our sins. Jesus has done it. He has done it and he says at the cross, this is finished. This Offering this sacrifice, this blood for sin is done. We can worship in joy 
at all that Christ has done. No more human effort here spent attempting to consecrate ourselves through washings and sprinklings of blood. God has consecrated us forever in Christ Jesus. Let me read this to you from Hebrews 10. This is 19 through 21. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that's that place inside the temple where a priest would go once a year. And he says, we, therefore, brethren, having boldness to go in there, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We don't need to worry about drawing near to God. Not now, not ever again. We have been consecrated by Jesus. We are permitted to come. Now, calming down. I have to call you to something better on Sunday mornings in light of this than what Israel knew in their worship. And I will summarize it this way. I have to call you to the right attitude and the right action on Sundays. Because the easiest way I could think of to, to phrase this. And there's so much that could be said about Sunday mornings, but, but, but this, this is what I've got. I can't just call you to do this once. This is where I feel the most failure um, in worship as a pastor on Sunday mornings. I have not done a good job of reminding us about these things. I have not done a good job of building a strong understanding of what worship on Sunday morning should be. This is my failure. I own it. It must not continue. I have to remind you of these things so that our worship is right on Sunday mornings. What should be the attitude? in our corporate worship. Gratitude and joy. That doesn't mean we never feel anything else. Or that there's never any sobriety or somberness to what we're doing or thinking about. But the prevailing attitude in worship should be gratitude and joy. It may not be easy to get there. I know that. I know that. There are things that get in the way of that. I know that. This is where we should go on Sunday mornings. I'm going to give you a few verses. These are a sampling. There are many more. Here's 2 Corinthians 4.15. For all things are for your sakes that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Now, when he says that grace having spread through the many, he's talking about the spread of the gospel. He's talking about salvation. You can read, don't just believe me, go to 2 Corinthians 4, earmark, dog ear the page, read it for yourself, see the context. He's talking about the spread of the gospel. And what should the spread of the gospel produce in the hearts of God's people? It should produce thanksgiving to God's glory. Gratitude. The work of the gospel produces thanksgiving. Here's another one. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. 
As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. That walk in Him, that's what we were called to earlier, present ourselves as living sacrifices, right? Daily walk with God, okay? As you do that, let it be rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith as you've been taught. And what should be the attitude of this? Abounding in thanksgiving, in gratitude. Not just a little bit, abounding in thanksgiving. You have to fight for this. Your flesh will constantly remind you of all that is wrong, of all that is failing, of all that has gone poorly, of all that there is to be selfish about or prideful about or frustrated, upset, bitter, angry about. You must fight, though, to find the joy of the Spirit of God and gratitude that accompanies it. Listen to the worship of God here in Revelation chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. And by the way, here we see a glimpse of that company that we read earlier, we assemble with on Sunday mornings. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Now, blessing and glory and wisdom and honor and power and might are amazing things. But when I look at that, I see attitude expressed in thanksgiving. Consider the warning of Paul in Romans 1.21. Here he describes people who are going to die and go to hell. And here is how he describes them. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Be careful. Be careful. If we cannot be thankful to God, if gratitude cannot become a part of our expression daily and when we assemble in worship, be careful. What will that do to your thoughts, to your thinking? What kind of darkness does that usher into the human heart? Finally, and trust me here, there's a lot more I could say, but consider Leviticus twenty-two twenty-nine. This is Old Testament. And here's God telling His people, when you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it of your own free will. In other words, God is looking for genuine gratitude here. Genuine gratitude. And he doesn't mean, and look, guys, if you're not feeling it, just stay home. That's not what, that's, that's not what it, worship in Israel was all about. No, no, no. It's, it's find gratitude. Muster gratitude. Be grateful and thankful to God. And as for joy, I mean, scriptures abound here, even more than they abound with the call to thanksgiving. And there were probably six other verses that I had in my initial notes on thanksgiving. But joy, I mean, it's everywhere. Here's Jesus, okay? This is John 15. These things I've spoken to you. Jesus come and he's preaching and he's teaching and he's declaring the kingdom of God. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Here's Paul in Romans. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I like this one from the Apostle John. Here's the Apostle John in 1 John. These things we write to you. He's speaking for all the apostles here. (laughs) All these apostolic writings. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. So the attitude of worship is gratitude and joy. And as for the action of worship, 
This might be hard to settle on, but this is where it ends. Worship is not a one-on-one activity. And it's not going to make sense to some of you, but it is a one-on-one-on-one activity. That may be a, a poor way of saying it, but that's what it is. It is not just myself and God. That's not what we're doing. It is wrong to think of the songs that we sing and the words that we speak and the prayers that we make as something offered solely to God. I'm going to show you that in the Bible. We are offering to God's service by serving one another. Remember Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 from earlier in the sermon. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is what's pleasing to God, that we consider one another in our worship. Think about this passage from Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, which encourages us to sing. He says, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Is it to the Lord? Yes. Who else is it to? To one another, echoed in Colossians. Same idea. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Are we singing to God? Yes, we are singing to Him. But we are also singing and speaking to each other. And you get a sense of that in the songs that we sing. Some songs are directly to God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, All thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky. I mean, we sing to God. But other songs are meant to be sung to each other. In our hearts unto the Lord, but to each other. Onward, Christian song. You think of that? Think of trust and obey. As we walk with the Lord in the light of his word. And the chorus, Christians, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy. And I mean... We do this in the words, but we need to think about this. We must consider one another in our hearts. So, Christian worship is not to be a passive, solitary offering to God where you sing your little song. It's meant to be sung to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so with our teaching, and so with our speaking, and so with all that we do on Sunday mornings. When I pray, of course I am praying to God. I'm not praying to you. But there's a reason we say so-and-so is leading us in prayer, is opening us in prayer, is closing us in prayer. There is a mind to a third party, and that third party is the assembly of God's people. This is the beauty of God's design in the church. I could preach on 1 Corinthians 12, which is spiritual gifts for a long time. In order to save you a couple of hours this morning, you're going to have to take these Summary quotes from 1 Corinthians 12. But by all means, brother and sister, dive deeply into 1 Corinthians 12. But here it is. One and the same Spirit works all these things. This is the Spirit of God. Distributing to each one individually, each Christian individually, as He wills. Those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. That's not just the word of Paul. That's the word of God. Those... Maybe you come here on Sunday mornings, you're like, well, I don't teach, I don't stand up and preach, I haven't been asked to do anything up in front of everybody for a while, I'm not in the choir, I'm not going to join the choir, 
And that's how you're thinking about this. In your mind, you may not phrase it this way, but I'm not essential. I'm a weaker brother. I'm not that. I'm a weak. You know, what I'm doing here is, I'm sitting here. I'm taking up space. And then Paul explains. God composed the body of Christ, having given greater honor to the parts which lack it, so that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's how God composed the body. We didn't just show up. This is not a random gathering of God's people. He has composed the body this way for a purpose, and we should have the same care for one another. Now you read that and you say, well, how, how do we have the same, the same care for one another? Everyone is supposed to be dying to themselves in service to the Lord Jesus and have a mind, be considering their brothers and sisters in Christ. What that means is different giftings and different actions, but it's done, it's all the same care in that it's done under the glory of God for the same purpose. Someone this morning might be here and they may have benefited tremendously from that section about Old Testament worship. And they're going to take that and they're going to go home and they're going to open their Bibles and be like, let me think about that. And they're going to look at Old Testament worship they're going to look at things like the Day of Atonement. And they're going to learn and they're going to dig deeply and God is going to use that in their lives. And if it does, if God uses that in that person's life, that, that little intellectual part of a sermon looking back at ancient peoples, then praise God. They needed it. God provided that through a gift of teaching on Sunday morning. Great. But the reality is probably a hundred other people didn't get anything from that. They didn't get anything from that. What they truly needed this morning was for a child of God to see them and to get up from their regularly assigned seats, which we don't have, by the way, as a joke. Thank you for laughing. A bad joke. I appreciate that. And sit down next to them because they are very alone and they've heard that God loves them, but they don't feel very loved and God is calling one of his children to love them as we gather here today and Someone else has never heard Christian men and women singing truly unto the Lord. Maybe they've come to church for a long time, but they sit in a place where it sounds like a muffled audio wherever they're at, and they've never heard someone singing to God like they see on TV when sports fans are out of their mind singing crazy in an arena. They've never, they've never seen anybody take Jesus that seriously. And someone needed an invitation to lunch. And someone needed the assembly of God's people to come up to them and to ask them how they can be praying for them. And other people have no idea what's going on in their lives right now. They can't make sense of it. They don't know where it's headed. And they don't have the guts to go talk to somebody about it themselves. But if someone showed them the hospitality to ask them for coffee this week, they could probably be compelled to do that. The number of children need candy this morning and a, a guy to go outside afterwards and throw a ball to them or a man or a woman to come up and tell them, you look really nice today. Can I shake your hand? How are you doing? Because they don't have the slightest idea that anybody in the world cares about them outside of their own little house and so on and so forth. And you cannot possibly convince me that all that's going to get done in a sermon or in a song or in a prayer. So let's be grateful. 
And let's be joyful on Sunday mornings. These are the attitudes of worship. And when it comes to the action, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And if we do that, and I've got to do a better job. I know it. I know I have to do a better job. I have to remind you of this, because I know. You get out of bed. I think we start very late in the service. I would be fine starting two hours earlier. I'm serious. I know you'd not, I'm on my own or in a small group, okay? But we come in here, and we need to be reminded of these things. Because we have a job to do. We have an action to do to bring glory to God. And it's important. And it's not a job that I can do. Many of those things I just said are not things that I'm particularly good at. But you might be good at some of them. So brothers and sisters, let's worship well on Sunday mornings. Let's close the Lord of Prayer. Father, for me, it's hard at any given moment or day in my life to think of anything beyond myself. And I'm sorry. And I know that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are as sinners. And I take that to mean he understood the compulsion to think of himself first. Father, I pray that you will give us the mind and the heart of Christ to not do that. But to position ourselves beneath the needs of others. To humble ourselves. Knowing, Father, that in due time, you will exalt the lowly. Father, when we come here and we worship you, please begin working this day to bring us with the right attitude and a mind towards those around us to not be lazy, to not be oblivious, but to be thoughtful and to be working out the good works that you've created us to perform in and among your people. I thank you for such a family as this one. I ask that you forgive me of my sin. I'm grateful for the forgiveness that you purchased for us at Christ. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.